Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Um, wanted to cap, uh, or rather put a cap on a news item we discussed a couple weeks ago. Uh, listeners might remember we discussed the story of a Suffolk County judge in New York who uh, was facing uh, a reprimand for calling an attorney the C-word. Oh, man, this story. Yeah. Um, well, he's not a judge anymore, uh, as it turns out. Great. The, uh, for the best. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the uh, New York Court of Appeals, uh, the guy's name again was Paul Senzer. Uh, because he's like a, it's like a part-time judgeship, he also can serve as an attorney uh, when he's not being a judge. Some emails surfaced where he talked about one of the uh, attorneys he was litigating against, a woman. Uh, he called her a, a C-word on wheels. His attorney tried to... Sort of I, I'm no lawyer, but but you can't do that. <laughs> well, the best part is what Alex was about to say, which is uh, the defense of that was trying to say it was a compliment. Yeah, yeah. They tried to yeah, say it was a compliment because no. she it was wasn't. like a really aggressive litigator or something. There's Didn't a really... word for that. Aggressive. It's easier. Simpler. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, anyway, he's been uh, booted off the bench. Um the woman who the, the 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 female attorney who was the uh, uh, the subject of the insult is a woman named Karen McGuire, and she put out a statement that was sort of generic that, that you know comments like that have no place anywhere, certainly not the judiciary. Uh, and um, she, she, but she then added uh, uh, in a comment uh, to uh, to uh, to our own Emma Cueto, she said, "If you want to say something, say something in my face, and not be such a coward." <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of apart from the point, which is kind of Love separate that. from the propriety Great. of the of the thing to say, and more about the secrecy, which I thought was pretty funny. So Love. Uh, anyway. Love that that was the final note of this story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting. So, uh, well, we I like a, that we're doing we an put update a on there. We've yeah. also got a bunch of other news to get to today. We're going to have another uh, all-host show because we have a lot of things we want to pack in. It's just um, us. Yeah. So I think we're going to... Start with something that you're bringing to the table, Bill. Yeah, we talked about this probably a month ago, but the the extremely strange, almost mind-meltingly strange case of, of uh, President Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, reached something of a strange... I was going to say crescendo, but it might get weirder before it gets before it's yeah, done. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, this is a case where... A federal judge had to hire his own lawyers because he appointed another judge to be a lawyer to argue <laughs> on behalf of the government, which doesn't want to be a part of the case at all. Do you right. guys? Do you, are you guys all? You, you staying with me? No, I not I'm one. Bit. I'm pretty sure I even talked about this story whenever we talked about it last, and I always need a reset of the facts. <laughs> um, so, and I'm sure everyone else does too. So, I remember this is like the OG. Trump quasi corruption scandal, but let's 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 get everybody back on the same page. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing actually started before Trump took office. It was like the weeks leading up to the inauguration. But yeah. um, we don't need to get into all the sort of facts of of this case. But I mean, in in 2017, um, Michael Flynn, who as I mentioned was was President Trump's first national security advisor, very very briefly, um, pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI during that. Um, those those early days. And uh, he then cooperated with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of the of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Um, 
But, you know, fa- fast forward to earlier this year, and, you know, Flynn had walked back his guilty plea and yeah. had said, you know, there was this impropriety on the part of the investigators, and I'd no longer want to plead guilty. DOJ took the very unusual move of dropping a case, which, again, I should mention, dropping a case in which the defendant had already pleaded guilty. Yeah, yeah. I, I think <laughs> you don't need to be a criminal justice advocate to reform advocate to to know that that's not something that prosecutors do that often um no, definitely not so uh the the what they said was that similar to what flynn had said which was there was misconduct in how the fbi had investigated the case um and that the government no longer believed if they had gone to trial that they would be able to win a conviction so they wanted to drop the case and and um, have the court dismiss it. Um, judge Emmett Sullivan, who was the judge overseeing it, uh, did not cooperate with this with this uh, sort of about face by the government. Rather than allow the DOJ to drop the case, he instead appointed a retired federal judge to argue as an amicus, not in the sense that we think of amici. Uh, you know, where it's a Supreme Court case and they file a brief and it's sort of, you know, off in the ether. He brought this retired judge, John Gleason, in to essentially argue as a surrogate for the government to sort of critique this move to to drop the the charges. And he was assuming he he was assuming the government's previous position, i.e. pursuing charges against Flynn and now arguing against the decision to drop it. Yeah. And I think we talked about it at the at the time. But um, the the most analogous sort of situation is when there's a change in 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 Congress and, you know, uh, the uh, or sorry, change in an administration and an administration is no longer defending a statute. Right. So. Congress people of the other party will, you know, sometimes find a way to defend that statute. But it was a very extremely strange situation to have this former judge being brought into this case as like essentially a party. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the judge Gleason filed this fairly uh, scathing brief earlier this month saying that there had been uh, there was, quote, clear evidence of a gross abuse of prosecutorial power. And that um, DOJ's move had been, quote, highly irregular conduct to benefit a political ally of the president. So Gleason, in this brief, urged Sullivan to um, make Flynn stick to his guilty plea and just move forward and sentence him for for what he he had pleaded guilty to. Okay, so I'm back to following what's happened. And that feels like a lot of action already. But we're actually at the appellate level now. So how do we get there? Well, let's yeah, let's let's um, make it even stranger. Let's like just spin it up again. Um, Yeah. So uh, Flynn's attorneys then asked the D.C. Circuit for a writ of mandamus, which is a a, a rare appellate procedure that, you know, attorneys probably remember from from law school reading about. But it's not something the courts do very often. It it was an order that sort of, you know, out of the normal appellate ladder course of action would have just straight up told the lower court you have to dismiss this case the way that you're behaving is so outside the norm that you just have to drop the case um sullivan who now (laughs) was in the very strange (laughs) position of having to um have lawyers representing his own position in the case because the the appellate court was was reviewing what he had done as opposed to like he directly had done as opposed to the parties um 
urged the he Sullivan urged the court to to reject that request, saying that you know let's stick to the normal appellate track and let me review the um, the DOJ's request and then I will issue a ruling. Then you can appeal it as much as you want, and we'll do it the normal way. This should be like a there should be this should be a test case for like a certain procedural route to see if people can keep that stuff straight in criminal proceedings. Um, but in any case, uh, we got there was a ruling uh, out of all of this morass. Let's talk about that. There was a ruling on Wednesday uh, by the D.C. Circuit uh, and by a two to one vote, a three judge panel sided with Flynn and ordered Judge Sullivan to immediately dismiss the case um, as DOJ requested. They granted that rare writ of mandamus. Um, it was uh, Judge Naomi Rao, a um, a Trump appointee, uh, who wrote the opinion. And what she said was that Sullivan had clearly lacked the authority to 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 appoint this amicus and to to do this sort of strange procedure that he had concocted and um really that he lacked the authority to 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 really second guess the dropping of the case at all in the way that he wanted to um she said the executive branch really needs to have the discretion to drop cases that you know it's just not the role of the court to say when cases are brought or when they are dropped that that is purely something that sticks to um that that should be in in the um the executive branch she called judge sullivan's actions quote unprecedented intrusions on individual liberty and the executive's charging authority um so here's the the full quote from the ruling that that people saw going around um judge rao said this case is about quote whether after the government has explained why a prosecution is no longer in the public interest the district court may prolong the prosecution by appointing an amicus, encouraging public participation, and probing the government's motives. On that, both the Constitution and cases are clear. He may not. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting that that she said the, the that the majority wrote that Judge Sullivan committed sort of an unprecedented intrusion, which is what she said, which is what almost every sort of critic of the Trump administration said about the sort of the you know. Bill Barr's sort of influence on the decision to drop the case in the first place. Right. Um, so certainly room for people to disagree. And there was a, a pretty interesting dissent as well. Well, and I think that that's um, and the dissent gets to it. But th- that's what's what's I think so interesting here is that the all these because we've sort of talked so much about it is how unusual these were. But they were. It was it's almost a nesting like nesting doll of overstepping, right? It's exactly. like <laughs> DOJ overstepped and then maybe also the district court overstepped and then now maybe also the appellate court is overstepped. Like it's everybody. Right. DOJ, DOJ did something right? so unusual in dropping this case that it like broke the judge and he didn't know what to <laughs> yeah. do. So now the appellate court is doing Yes, exactly. I would just right. say, Amber, be careful with the Russia metaphors with this story. I think <laughs> we can just just that's I mean totally unintentional, guys. It's on it's 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 complicated enough. I think, but what did the dissent <laughs> sure. say? <laughs> so, Judge um, uh, Judge U.S. Circuit Judge Robert Wilkins, who um, was a, an Obama appointee, um, he wrote the dissent, and he wrote, "quote It is a great irony that in finding the district court to have exceeded its jurisdiction, this court so grievously oversteps its own. This appears to be the first time that we have issued a writ of mandamus to compel a district court to rule in a particular manner on a motion without giving the lower court a reasonable opportunity to issue its own ruling. 
So it's you know the it's a it's a very fascinating read um, just on the procedure of uh, all these different procedural questions and you obviously get these two these two judges going back and forth and Rao wrote a, a big series of things rebutting the dissent so uh, everyone should go check out the ruling it's it's a fascinating read if you're into all this stuff um, the next big question that we have is you know what happens next as I mentioned at the very yeah. up, up top. Um, there could be like this is the kind of, the kind of situation. Oh, good! Another where... round of judicial review. <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> but I mean, the full the full DC Circuit d- still is um, skews toward judges that were appointed by Democratic presidents. So yeah. there is the 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 possibility that this you know this strange unusual move, the latest in a series of strange unusual moves, will draw the attention of the full court, which will step in to you know once again. Uh, try to figure out how to deal with this very strange situation. So for the second thing we want to talk about today, I'm going to stick with some um, touching base on stories that we've had on Pro Se before. This time it's big cancer product liability cases. I've got a couple of updates in this area. So the first one is that an appeals court in Missouri upheld more than $2 billion in damages against Johnson & Johnson in one of the big cases blaming baby powder for ovarian cancer. And then the second one also happened this week. Bayer said it will pay $10.9 billion to settle claims that Monsanto's weed killer Roundup causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's we've, wild with these cases, just the numbers that you see huge. thrown around. That, and we've talked about it in the past in terms of sometimes these damages will get knocked down, and you know, right. I think you're about to talk about that. But just the eye popping numbers. I mean, we're talking about twelve billion, thirteen billion dollars. Yeah, it's, these two it's cases, also just obviously are completely different cases, but um, it's just. But a, it's interesting to numbers. see them both come down in one week. That these have uh, have gone this way toward these giant settlement pools. So. Mm-hmm. Let me break them down one by one. Let's go talc first. Um, the fight here, to remind everybody, is over whether talc that's a big component in baby powder that was sold by Johnson & Johnson contains asbestos, mm-hmm. and that can cause ovarian cancer. So a group of cancer victims and their families went to trial back in 2018 against J&J. The jury awarded each woman who was um, a named plaintiff in that or their family $25 million in compensatory damages and then $4 billion in punitive damages. So huge award there. Yeah. What happened this week is that the court halved that verdict, um, but it did it in an interesting way because it refused to overturn it completely and even said that the trial evidence showed the company's conduct was outrageous. So to explain why it was slashed, but you still got that outrageous bit the slash was because the court said that that it was a j&j subsidiary mm-hmm. that their conduct couldn't be imputed back onto the parent company well so now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry go ahead well no i mean it's just like you you already said this a little bit but the 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 idea that the awards become so large that even when they are literally chopped in half, we're still so in the billions of dollars. That it's like, okay, yes, now the court is acting like the back. Now the appeals courts are acting like the backstop that they're supposed to be, and you're still on the hook for 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 billions of dollars. Yeah, and this one I think was really interesting because they the the court in reviewing this totally went out of its way to say like, yeah, J and J's to blame here, um, mm-hmm. even though I'm lowering this overall payout, which is not what you always see. Yeah, so, that's true. Um, the, I liked this quote. 
The evidence adduced in this trial showed clear and convincing evidence defendants engaged in conduct that was outrageous because of evil motive or reckless indifference. I know that's like a legal term of art here. It is. But like yeah. it's anytime you see evil motive in a court ruling, <laughs> you know that the, you know things aren't good for the defendant. Yeah. And I, I can sort of explain like why they got to that and, and fit it into that legal standard. So. The appellate court pointed to the company's internal memorandums that had come out as part of this case that as far back as the 1960s, they talked about talc and how those products contained asbestos and that the mineral can be dangerous. So that's a long history that they pointed to there. For its part, J&J says that there's faulty science at play here that even found asbestos in talc. They dispute all of this. Um, And there's still thousands of lawsuits from consumers that are ongoing about all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. So last month, the company actually took the step to say it's going to stop selling baby powder made from talc in all of North America. Wow. So that's a decision against uh, you know J&J and the J&J business unit. We also want to talk about a settlement... Um, different product liability case. You mentioned the Roundup case. What was the uh, what were the facts there? Yeah, uh, the top line in this one is that Bayer is going to pay almost eleven billion dollars to settle roughly one hundred and twenty five thousand claims that this weed killer Roundup causes cancer. So another just product that's allegedly causing a lot of illness in America. So this broad settlement would end. They they estimate about seventy five percent of the current Roundup litigation. There's tons of it all over yeah. the country. This settlement includes multi district litigation and some big bellwether cases that we were watching out of California. One hundred twenty five thousand cases is just you think about. It's a ton. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a ton. Ugh. So what what exactly? I mean, what were all those cases basically saying that yeah. that, that Roundup did? So Roundup, I mean, I'm saying it just like it's a household name because it is. It's a really widely used um, weed killer, and it's used a lot by farmers in particular and landscapers because the product is designed to kill weeds but leave underlying crops um, still thriving and and not impacted. So it's very popular. Um, But it contains a chemical that the World Health Organization added to a list of of probable carcinogens back in 2015. That spurred a landslide of these suits um, after that happened. They all allege that Monsanto, who was the original manufacturer here, Bayer bought that company later on. Yeah. Um, they they allege that Monsanto knew of the health risks that were associated with Roundup since the 90s, when studies started to show that there's a link between its product and lymphoma. And they say the plaintiffs um, downplayed that science and they didn't put a warning label on Roundup. And so people that bought it thought it was safe. And with that background, like we've talked about these cases on Pro Se before. We've mm-hmm. talked about some of the early trials. I think Alex referenced some of the the big numbers we've seen in this. And that's pretty much what everybody's remembering here. Um, there are three in particular that got huge jury verdicts. The plaintiffs in those were awarded $80 million, $289 million, and $2 billion in three successive suits. All of those later on were reduced post-trial, but I think those original numbers are instructive to just show how tough it was in court for Bear when juries heard, you know, the whole the whole set of facts here. And all, uh, just to be clear, all three of these cases that I just cited that went to trial, they're not part of the settlement. But I think it does 
inform how Bear got to the point that they were willing to shell out $11 billion to settle a bunch of other suits. Yeah, we're on the sort of, we're on the long arc of the of the Roundup litigation here, which has just been pretty ubiquitous, especially if you follow, follow product liability law. And, you know, settlements are... Whenever we talk about settlements, it's always like, okay, you know, it's, it's certainly a win. This is certainly a huge amount of money. But in terms of creating good law and like a, you know, getting us to a definitive resolution on the sort of legal findings regarding this widely used product, where are we at? I mean, I mean, did, what, what did Bayer have to say for itself, first yeah. of all? Does it consider itself? I mean, itself, a couple of I mean things they're out I of the woods, I'm sure. Yeah. Probably expect. One is that. Bayer didn't admit liability or wrongdoing. They said that this was you know, a strategic decision, of course. So here's a quote from the Bayer CEO, Warner Bauman. First and foremost, the Roundup settlement is the right action at the right time for Bayer to bring a long period of uncertainty to an end. It is financially reasonable when viewed against the significant financial risks of continued multi-year litigation and the related impacts to our reputation and our business. So that's kind of what I was talking about before. They sort of looked at the landscape of what had already happened in court, and they just can see a long road ahead with so many ongoing suits. So, you know, this is different from the talc case that we that we discussed at the beginning of the segment, because talc, that, that powder has been pulled from the market. This is a settlement, and Roundup is still being sold. And you spoke a little bit about how the company clearly has an eye toward suits that it might face um how is it how is it contemplating those yeah so this is a little bit unusual um but they have also set aside 1.25 billion dollars this is on top of that nearly 11 billion yeah to create a potential class payout for um future people who haven't gotten sick yet but have been using roundup and may have been exposed Mm -hmm. so essentially you know, from the way I understand it is that these Roundup users who are not yet sick are going to be sought out with a class notice process, and they could then um, have the chance to opt out of the agreement. Otherwise, they'll be covered by this $1.25 billion bucket of money that's set aside for these people. And that's, you know, it, it's such a tricky thing with such a ubiquitous product and so many suits, and they certainly foresee future problems. So that's one way to try to forestall that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to leave us sort of on that note with how complicated this can be. Uh, Law360, um, some of our reporters spoke to a professor at the University of Georgia. Her name's Elizabeth Chambly Birch, and she explained it this way. There's no silver bullet. That's the problem defendants are facing when they have a product that they don't want to pull from the market and when that product is alleged to cause a harm that has a long latency period. So next we have what I think is an incredibly relatable legal dispute because, listen, who among us has not been in a financial dispute with our landlord? We've in all one, been there. In one right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you you especially, Bill, I almost feel like you should have talked about this since you, you're so close to this issue. Um, well, apparently uh, it, this is also true uh, for successful law firms, especially during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Let's... Because uh, 
This week, we will be talking about the case of Jenner and Block, which is being sued by its landlord over missed rent payments during the during the sh- the, the lockdown period that we're all in. Um, they are trying to collect the, the the landlord is trying trying to collect three point seven million dollars from the firm over those missed payments. This week, the firm said it is actually the landlord who is on the hook for about eight hundred thousand dollars. So, um, the classic co- the classic legal defense of <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> I, I know yes i know you are but what am i um uh so this is going to cook people's brains a little bit i think the idea of receiving money from your landlord is crazy um that's almost always a one-way street um but like so many well let's we could just talk about this a little bit um like so many covid legal disputes this stretches back to that crucial week of time in the middle of march when businesses across the country began to shut their doors and started working remotely, uh, Jenner and Block did the same. Uh, uh, this this suit is specifically about a Chicago office. It closed other offices, but it effectively abandoned its 417,000 square foot Chicago office, which houses uh, about 579 employees. Uh, the firm stopped paying rent at that point, um, which, uh, as you might expect, attracted a suit from its landlord, um, which is a which is a subsidiary of the real estate firm Heitman LLC. Basically, the landlord said, uh, "You're defaulting on the lease, uh, and we demand three point seven million dollars, both in unpaid rent and also penalties and other charges and things like that." That's all pretty standard so far. I don't yeah. see where we're going to turn the table here. But as I say, it stemmed from COVID, right? And it's not like Jenner and Block just decided to stop paying rent on a whim. They believe that there is a specific clause in the lease agreement about a failure to use a certain percentage of its space through no fault of their own that basically triggers rent abatement provisions, oh, meaning you don't have you to pay the rent clever. anymore. You got to know if you're a landlord, if law- a bunch of lawyers are your tenants, <laughs> that like they're just going to be absolute pains in the ass about everything. <laughs> I mean, that is clever. Though, I hadn't guys. thought of it, it that way, but yeah. It's, um, I don't think people put those clauses in lease agreements with the anticipation of a pandemic they probably were thinking of more traditional things like there's a big leak in the building and you can't use a a certain square footage while it's being repaired that kind of stuff rather than like a complete drawdown and that's actually pretty instructive here so the firm uh like i said the, the 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 complaint was filed in may the firm filed its first response this week and they said uh, that the landlord suit had fa- had failed to attach the actual lease agreement, which seems funny oh. if you're if you're suing over the terms of a lease agreement. Um, uh, Jenner and Block did did uh, attach the lease, and they um, were, were about to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole with um, uh, uh, corporate lease agreements. But in any case, the firm says it's entitled to a stoppage of its rent payments. Uh, in the event of the quote, the 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 term of art in the in the lease agreement is untenantability, which that's is a new a, one that's on a made me. up word. They made yeah. that up. <laughs> <laughs> untenantability. Uh, like I say, I had to do a little bit of reading on this. Uh, that arises quote out of any event, force majeure or otherwise. Uh, basically, that is defined as um, applying when. Uh, the tenant, in this case Jenner, quote, is, uh, is unable to and does not utilize all or a portion consi- consisting of at least 20% of the premises. So it's like if we aren't using 20% of the premises, uh, you know, we can get off the hook for, for these rent payments. Now, as you said, Amber, that might 
like you, you might get into some gray area here if like a certain part of the building is rendered not use not not suitable for work or something like that. But the firm says it has it has left roughly ninety eighty nine percent of the office untouched since March. They have a skeleton crew that goes in there every couple of weeks to take care of things, but it's effectively like totally vacant. Um, now, most importantly, the lease says that this idea of untenantability must be reasonably determined by the tenant and in compliance with, with applicable laws. So that means that Jenner and Block has the authority to, like, look, like, to make that call on its own. They don't need to ask the landlord for like, a ruling on whether or not they still need to be there. The tenant right. can reasonably determine uh, whether or not it's proper for them to be there. Um, and Jenner said no. And to support that, they included in the response this week uh, a, a declaration from a man named Richard Stein, who the firm said negotiated the lease on behalf of the previous landlord. And Stein said uh, in his declaration to the court that COVID-19 is, is just the sort of thing that this passage was written to cover. He wrote, or rather he, he said in the declaration, I believe that Jenner and Block is not obligated to pay rent for the material amount of space that it, had, that it has reasonably determined it cannot use as it intended in the normal course of business as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. I believe the current pandemic is the very type of disruptive event to which Jenner and Block was referring in lease negotiations and for which Jenner and Block sought and received protection in the form of rent abatement. So there you have the, the one of the people who purportedly crafted the, the crafted the deal, crafted the lease saying this. About yeah, the, it's uh, so interesting thinking about th- th- trying to say sort of what we just said a few minutes ago, which is like, was this actually what you thought about when you put this in right. there? Because yeah. it, it's, you know, it's it's like so much with, with COVID where if it, it, we're sort of molding things potentially that were designed for other things into this into this frame. Yeah. Um, but I, I, as I began by saying, not only have they sort of rebutted the central premise of the lawsuit, um, remember that I said this all went down in the middle of March. So the firm had already paid that full month's rent when it decided to abandon ship. The March rent was already in, and then it abandoned, I think, it's, I think it was March 14th. But it was somewhere in that, in that middle part of March. Yep. Um, now it's now asking... Um, for that money back, along with a, with a couple of overpaid operating expenses and taxes from the last couple of years, all of which amounts to about eight hundred and forty grand. So you have so, so, so the, the the partial rent refund uh, combined with this other stuff. You have the landlord asking for three point seven million, and you have uh, the firm actually saying you owe me over eight hundred thousand um, dollars. So, uh, like I say, you know, rent payments um, sort of have grabbed a lot of headlines on the individual. Uh, level. We've talked about that a couple of times, housing courts and things like that. Um, but big law and corporate law firms, uh, no exception to that either. And this is um, certainly an interesting case to keep your eye on. our show is something offbeat and bill i think you have an update about something we talked about before yeah i have an update about people getting mad on the web no about- shortage of content there uh <laughs> I, that that getting, much i can assure you getting po'd about something somebody said on twitter.com a congressman no less 
Congressman Devin Nunes, uh, the uh, congressman from the the great state of California, last year sued a fake cow that uh, (laughs) said mean stuff about him on the Internet. Um, I had almost forgotten about this one. Glad to be touching down on it again. What has happened with that? Uh, well, a judge ruled this week that uh, Nunez cannot sue Twitter itself over uh, the mean stuff that the fake cow said on Twitter's platform. <laughs> uh, that's it. I mean, that's that's really the whole segment. <laughs> I think we can go home. Everyone have a good weekend. If you could just call it the fake cow on Twitter a few more times, that pretty much <laughs> fills out this whole segment for me. Yeah, I I remember a little bit that there were there were a couple of troll accounts that would say mean stuff about Nunez, and he was obviously really mad about it, even though people are saying mean things about politicians, true and otherwise, all the time. Since um, time in memoriam. Since time in memoriam, long before Twitter, long sure. after Twitter is, is, is in the dust, uh, I assume. Um, but what were the... What were the specific accounts? I know there was a, there was a cow and there was something else, and they were saying they did they did puns and stuff. Yeah, was there was one. There was one that pretended to be uh, Nunez's mom. Which yeah, right. You know, again, we're not saying this is nice. <laughs> no, just not necessarily saying it's a violation of the law. Um, uh, another one pretended, as I mentioned, to be uh, a cow. I think uh, the Nunez's run a dairy concern in California. I believe. Yeah, yeah. There's some um, kind of connection. And then another, and then a third account was not anonymous. It was a, it was a Republican uh, political strategist who was out there publicly and also was named in this lawsuit, which was filed last year. It demanded um, two hundred and fifty million dollars over Whoa. over this, claiming that these accounts had defamed uh, Nunez. Um, I, I have a quote here of one of the one of the tweets from the cow account. Um, quote. Devin's boots are full of manure. He's utterly worthless, and it's <laughs> pasture time to move him to prison. That's <laughs> so dumb, you guys, and I love a pun. I just... It's deeply dumb. I just, it gets me. I love a Nunes, pun. Yeah. I mean, Nunez was really charged up about this stuff, and I mean... Like we already said, the, the the accounts did say some stuff. I mean, that's like pretty innocuous well, right there. Yeah, but it had other stuff that was worse. I understand the concept of getting upset. I mean, even even politicians are human. These things have to get under their skin on some level, but just nobody sues about it. Like, no, that's and the difference. Nobody sues about it for all the good policy sort of reasons that you're implying, but also people don't sue about it because of the Streisand effect, which yeah. is the term for when you sue someone and then everyone knows about the thing that right. you're suing them over and they probably wouldn't have otherwise if you just hadn't sued them. Yeah, so, we would never be talking about this on Pro Se and exactly. listeners wouldn't be hearing about it right this second if he hadn't sued. This would so have the, just been a blip in the... Uh, constant stream of stuff on Twitter. The cow account had 1,200 followers when this all started. Uh, after more than a year of litigation, it currently has 735,000 wow. followers on Twitter. <laughs> of course it does. Awesome. Way to go. Of course uh, it does. Great job. You know what? I'm just happy this is <laughs> and teaching you And you lost. Up. That's the Look. thing. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, like and you, you, lost. You, you might win and whatever. Maybe, maybe you get some money, whatever. But this has still got way more attention on these insulting things. Now he's lost. I mean, maybe we'll see well, if he appeals. But it's okay, very so, I, so yeah. Bill, when, when <laughs> yeah, somebody starts the account to troll you, just know... Don't sue about it. Well, okay. So what I think just to, to I think what what 
someone would tell you is the sort of dangerous thing about things like this is they don't care if they win when someone files a sort of, you know, questionable defamation lawsuit like this known as a slap lawsuit uh, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, the, a critic might say that, well, they don't care. They're just trying to create sort of a chilling effect of like anyone right. who says anything about me is going to get dragged into court. Sure. sure. Um, but so this week we got a ruling in, in Virginia where this case was filed. Um, a judge, uh, a state judge ruled that Nunez couldn't sue Twitter itself over the cow thanks to... Um, uh, I know you I love saying, saying over, that. Just... O- over the cow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the cow at issue. Thank uh, you. <laughs> thanks to something that a lot of people have probably heard of a lot recently, which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency yeah. Act. Oh, um, yeah. This is the statute that uh, immunizes online platforms from liability over materials that are posted by their users. It basically says if someone says something defamatory on Twitter, Twitter is not responsible. You can go after that person, but Twitter, just because they were the place where someone said it, does not become liable under sort of traditional legal doctrines that created a new idea. The idea being that if you put platforms on the hook for those kind of things they would be sued so often that they wouldn't let anybody say anything and then you have a vicious cycle where it's just there's no internet anymore so both democrats and republicans have voiced a lot of concerns about 230 recently for obviously very different reasons but um the the idea that this sort of over immunizes these companies that are now gigantic companies it was written in the 90s when they were little fun sort of startups um uh, but it's been Republicans, namely President Trump, who have been really loudly complaining about it of late, claiming that yeah. it sort of can be used to protect platforms when they censor conservative voices. Um, last month, Trump issued a sort of legally dubious executive order that purported to limit Sections two, 230's protections. That really doesn't have much sort of legal effect but um this month the doj proposed actual legislation and there's some there's some other bills that are floating around in congress that would really change the law and that really would have an effect and sort of change how um uh you know how companies are immunized from these things and thus obviously how they would have to sort of sort of police this stuff on their platform so it the heart of this ruling this week in the sort of admittedly pretty silly lawsuit is yeah. a, is a is a big issue that we're going to be talking about for for the next few years. I'll be you... having to talk about it for the next few years if we can continue to refer to a cow on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> a, a yeah, mean, I would love for like this a, to a become like Well, I would love for this to become I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll talk about the future of the case in a second. It would be great if this produced like really like like you know, interesting appellate case law that is like referred to forever. Nunez yes. v. Nunez v. Cow defendants Nunez or whatever. V. Anytime <laughs> that we get like animals involved here, I just love these stories. This could be my new Naruto, guys. Sure. I hope it. Hope it. Can I was going to say we can see if the cow can be. Anyway, well, what's the you? We we already said Twitter's off the hook, but what is if there is a future to this lawsuit? What might it look like? Twitter's off the hook because of two thirty, but the actual independent or in, individual defendants who allegedly defamed Nunez are still part of the case, and the case is going to move forward against them. Uh, that will involve Nunez trying to unmask uh, the the people behind these accounts to sort of you know to to go after them and sue them. They're currently the two parody accounts are both anonymous. Um, it's a masked cow. Great. Uh, <laughs> so um, the case will proceed against them. Um, we should say, as I mentioned earlier, the, the the cases filed by public figures like Nunez have almost no shot at winning when it comes to defamation. The there's 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 the First Amendment. You may have heard of it. 
Uh, they make it sort of hard bit. to to bring cases bit. like this. Um, <laughs> I, you know, that's not to say that they couldn't win, but um, th- these cases are not often um, often very winnable by the public officials who bring them. But as I mentioned earlier. That I think a critic would tell you that that is not always the intention of the lawsuit is to to, to win it is so much as to to bring it and and litigate it. I uh, I also want to say um, if you're listening and you're curious as to how this has played out actually on Twitter, the cow account uh, was uh, very celebratory when this came down and it posted an image of Nunez uh, with. <laughs> uh, what I'm going to go ahead and charitably say is milk being sprayed all over his face, and it was a deeply cursed image highly that's, recommend you check it out that's tough i uh, uh counterpoint <laughs> please don't <laughs> well to each their own i don't know uh yeah i'm gonna cut this off now seems like a good time to end the show guys uh but thanks for being with me on today's show bill see you again next week guys and alex thanks we also want to thank our producers kelly marcano and Stephen trader our graphic designer chris yates and our contributing reporters this week daniel siegel cara salvatore dave simpson and jody godoy Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts that helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.